You're now listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, Episode 10. Welcome to the Major League Real Estate Podcast, a podcast for operators of large-scale real estate portfolios. My name is Brandon Hall, and I'm your host. Together with my co-host, Dylan Brown, we talk about tax and legal strategies, and we bring on operators of large portfolios for in-depth discussions on how they grew their business. We hope you enjoy, and with that, let's get to it. Welcome to another episode of the Major League Real Estate Podcast. Today, we are joined by Nathan Sosa. He's a CPA and has his master's in taxation, and he works at our firm, Hall CPA. Nate's going to be coming on to talk about real estate professional status. In the past, on with the various content that we've put out, where we talk about real estate professional status is typically pertaining to you know high-income W-2 earners or business owners and what they need to do to utilize rental real estate to offset their ordinary income. But what we're going to talk about today is whether or not general partners in syndications and funds can qualify as a real estate professional, and the answer is not as straightforward as you might think. So tune in to the full episode. We also drop some tips at the very end of this episode. So make sure you listen to the entire thing, but let's go ahead and bring Nate onto the show. Nate, welcome to the show. Hey guys, pleasure to be with you today. Super excited to get to talk about our uh, topic today. Yeah, yeah, us too. Uh, well, why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I am a CPA. I have a massive taxation from Denver of Law. I finished that actually this past summer. Super fun experience. Honestly, I'm a Big old tax nerd. So I do a lot of reading in the tax space, real estate space. Super fun area for me to talk about. I have a wife and a five-month-old. So maybe you'll hear them in the background. Maybe you won't. And then also, I am a long-distance runner. I actually just completed a marathon this past weekend. So those are pretty much the things that take all of my time at this point in my life. So <laughs> How'd the marathon go? Marathon went pretty great. Marathon went yeah. fantastic. I actually had a uh, had a nice PR, which is always what I'm looking for. Perfect race conditions. It was uh, down in Houston, so pretty fantastic. What was your PR? Yeah, I was just about to say, you can't leave us hanging because I know what you ran. It was incredible. <laughs> you, you're, you're downplaying it too much. So I ran a 305. I, I ran a 305 marathon. Uh, it's like chip time was like 307-ish. So it was actually like a 30-minute-ish 30 30 minute PR for me. So basically went from taking it casually to being serious. So <laughs> we'll see what happens. Is that an eight, eight and a half minute mile roughly? Uh, so it was a 705 minute mile. Oh my God. I just totally <laughs> did that insane. math terribly. <laughs> That's insane. Wait, what? A 705 mile? How do you even do that? Um, lots and lots of training. <laughs> that's incredible, man. Brandon, he's like in the one percentile. What is that? Like that's that's yeah. got to be like the one wow. percentile. How far is the marathon? 26.2 miles. 26.2. Okay. That's where my math was wrong. Jeez. Congratulations, man. That's, I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. I know that's a lot of a lot of training to build up to something like that. Oh, yeah. I spent the past two days just like in a coma, basically. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, we're happy to have you, Nathan, because I look to you to all of my tax nerd talk. Um, we at the firm, we've got these uh, biweekly meetings or uh, twice a week meetings, not biweekly. And yeah, it's going to be always us talking tax and Nathan brings so much to the table in those meetings. He really does know his stuff. Another one of those partnership nerds, another one of those real estate tax nerds. So let's get right into it because today we are talking about reps 
real estate professional status, but we're talking about it in terms of what happens when you scale up and you start to do less of the hands-on work and you're starting to become more of like that fund level the syndicator. We're, we're going to get into it a little bit, but let's bring it way back because a lot of our listeners, this is not a new term, but let's just start with what is the real estate professional status? Let's, let's just hear a little bit of that history and kind of dive into it a bit. Yeah, Dylan, great question. Yeah, I always like to start with the basics before we start scaling up because that's that's just how you grow up. That's how tax gets built. It's like it's got these fundamentals, and then you grow up from there. And that's when you start getting to the rinky dinky, interesting situation. So, yeah, what is real estate professional status, right? So, let's go into the way back machine. So, back in 1986, Congress passed the Tax Form Act, and they basically, when a lot of investors were taking advantage of real estate as a tax shelter. And so Congress was not a big fan of this because there's not a lot of activity. They really wanted to limit this. So they implemented Code Section 469. And by implementing Code Section 469, they basically said, all rental real estate losses are now passive by default. You have to prove to us that this is no longer a passive activity for you. And so we had about seven years of that. Well, a lot of people who actually do work in real estate we're not super happy about this, not being able to use losses they're getting uh, that were being created in their everyday trader business and not having the ability to use it. So then in 1993, Congress implemented 469C7B. And this was the real estate professional status. Real estate professional status basically means that you have proven that you operate in a real property trade or business. Essentially, this means that you have the ability, potentially still, to take losses from, like you are taking passive losses and converting them to non-passive losses. Okay, got it. So let's talk about that for just a second here, because you use key terms here that I want to dive into real quick before we open it up into the rest of our discussion. So you mentioned passive, you use the term ability to utilize, I think is what you said, or something along those lines. So just for our listeners sake, just talk through what it means when an activity is passive. And what are the negative implications of that for those folks who either weren't professionals in real estate who are just investing in real estate, but also especially for those folks who were professionals in real estate, and it was like their day job. I, I want to hear more about that passive activity loss limitation kind of that you were just sort of starting to touch on. Yeah. So a passive loss is a loss that you, so if you invest into a rental home, right? You're a real estate investor, you buy a single family home. Well, you get a property manager, let's say. And so you don't actually do anything. You're not spending that much time on it. That loss is going to be passive. And Rental, like I mentioned before, rental real estate losses are by presumption passive. So this means that like, let's say you drop a loss, right? Like let's say that, and a lot of times in real estate, we get these quote unquote paper losses. So like, like it shows a taxable loss. However, you will not get to offset that against, let's say your W-2 income, right? And so if like you are a doctor, an engineer, an architect, something of that type of nature, that is your non-passive income. Well, you won't be able to use the passive losses against your non-passive income, which would be your W-2 income. Another example is like business income. So like, let's say that you are in the trade of business of being a doctor. Like, let's say like you have a medical practice, something like that. Business income, you still can't use your rental losses against that income. And then oddly enough, portfolio income, that's another example that actually is like if you like interest, dividends, like those type of items, you can't use rental real estate to offset those items. However, the way to allow that to happen and allow to offset those losses to unlock them per se 
is to utilize real estate professional status. So unless you qualify as real estate professional, your rental losses are passive, can only be used to offset passive income or gain on sale from passive activities. Uh, and if you don't have either one of those things, then your rental losses just get carried forward. So everybody out there that's like pushing cost segregation studies and, and bonus depreciation, you really have to understand the passive activity loss rules before engaging in anything like that, because you could end up with a huge amount of depreciation that creates a huge amount of tax loss that is just suspended and carried forward because it's passive, because you don't qualify as a real estate professional. Uh, and you mentioned too, and, and I'm just going to say it, but you mentioned even if you qualify as a real estate professional, you have the opportunity, I think I might have misused that word, but you have the opportunity to make your rentals non-passive. You still have to materially participate. There's seven tests for material participation, which we may or may not get into today. But I did want to point out that if you want a... So this is a primer on real estate professional status for the rest of our conversation. If you want a deep dive on it, we actually did a really good job of this on the TaxSmart REI podcast. You can go to www.therealestatecpa.com, click on resources, podcast, and then just search REPS. And we have like six or seven series on it where we do a deep technical dive on it. But what we have never done is we've never talked about real estate professional status at scale. It's clear, right? If I'm buying rentals and I'm managing all those rentals myself, that I'm a real estate professional. But what's not clear is if I'm raising capital and I'm just moving myself up the chain of like jobs that you would do that would normally be real estate professional status, how does real estate professional status apply at scale? But can a fund manager qualify as a real estate professional? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, this is like where we kind of get into like a little bit of the quote unquote like gray areas of tax. It's like, hey, so what happens if I really start to scale up my business and all of a sudden I'm overlooking, you know, 300 doors per se, or if I've got a massive multi-million dollar fund that I'm, I'm managing at this point, like, is it possible for me to still qualify for reps? And I got to say in tax, one of the caveats we would like to say is it depends, right? So like, what are you doing? What are you doing as this fund manager? What are you doing as the CEO, this executive that is, in your day-to-day, -day, I guess, is like what it comes down to. In your day-to-day, -day, if you are dealing with a lot of the management, if you are dealing with the operations, if you are instructing, hey, we are at 9% vacancies on this section of our rentals, you know, you probably have a better chance to qualify as a real estate professional. Now, if you are like so far removed that you're not even talking to the managers of the managers, like if you're at that point and if you're talking from that perspective to these people, I would say you are closer to what's called investor level hours. And that is caveated specifically 1.469-5TF2, where it talks about basically if you are summarizing finances, if you are reading summaries of cases, if you are like diving into those items. And this is also referenced in 1469-9B4, where personal services may have any work performed by an individual in connection with the trader business, but personal services do not include any work performed by an individual in the individual's capacity as an investor, which basically means that in this, in this numbers test, this hours test, those hours are taken out. So let's explore that a little bit. I mean, when would somebody be at risk for elevating themselves to the level of an investor? 
if that makes sense. Like you can be acquiring all of the properties, you can be doing all the things. And then as you scale, you've, you've elevated yourself out of those jobs and now you're just the investor. How would you advise somebody on that in terms of looking at real estate professional status? The question is like, do you need real estate professional status? If you're at that level and you're creating passive income, there's a good chance that all your income is passive in general and that you don't necessarily need to actually hit real estate professional status. I know it's something that you've hit previously. Maybe like when you were first scaling up, you know, you're in your early 20s, you're growing your portfolio and now you've got this massive fund that you've created. Maybe back then that's when it mattered a lot for me from a tax perspective. But now you're an investor, you've scaled yourself, you've invested well, you've done well. You might not need non-passive losses anymore. Most of your income might be coming from a passive perspective. Because it's coming from the rental real estate that you have acquired. 100%. So if you've got the passive income, then you don't need non-passive losses. You just need passive losses. And again, to recharacterize, I know that's not the right terminology, but to recharacterize my losses from passive to non-passive, that's where real estate professional status comes in. So if I don't need to do that, then I don't need real estate professional status. Interesting. What if I'm um, raising capital? I'm part of a GP and I'm raising capital to place the capital into the deal? What if I'm not the lead GP? So the three of us get together and we go raise $200 million because we've got expansive networks and Dylan's running the deal. All right. But me and you, Nate, are not. Can you or I qualify as a real estate professional? Yeah, that's a great question. I would honestly say that we would have a really hard shot at qualifying for real estate professional status. I would say that for the most part, it is likely that we're just going to be seen as investors in this deal. Because we're just capital raisers. We're putting money into the deal. It's going to be really hard for us to be involved in the day-to-day. -day. Like Dylan's going to be involved in the day-to-day -day likely, right? He's going to be running the operations. He's going to be involved in the management. He's like, he's going to target properties. He's going to target the items that the fund wants to increase on. While me and you, we're just kind of hanging back and we're letting Dylan do his thing. Okay. And what if, I've always had this question too, because Dylan could potentially qualify, but the reality is at the scale, you're kind of just handing it off to a property manager anyway, right? Yeah, that's the thing is that like you are just handing off to a property manager. So like that's where it, this is where it gets very gray. So in, in Lamas, there, in, in, there's a case called Lamas Recommissioner where he was a CEO. He actually was running a couple businesses for his kids, right? His kids are part owners in a business. And then all of a sudden one day his son-in-law kind of like steals money, for, a lot of money from the company and kind of puts the company in a hole. And so he ended up, having to go like basically step back into the president role and go back out, go find all his old contacts from his old job, the network, like you mentioned, you know, and he did have to do a little bit of promotion and discussion. The tax court actually said that he was able to materially participate. They did not qualify him from a real estate professional standpoint. So in this circumstance, it kind of felt more like capital raising worked because of the hole the company was in. So it's a little bit of a gray area, but like you said, like Dylan potentially could qualify, but it'd be very difficult at the scale that he's at. Cause he like, this guy was also talking directly with contractors. He's talking directly with contractors. He was negotiating the prices with them. He was also working on negotiating loan discounts and he was working on trying to, like he was very much involved into the quote unquote day-to-day -day operations. 
So this guy uh, in the Llamas case, you said it was, this guy was involved and was counting some what I could consider could potentially be considered like investor hours. So this is something that I'm asking you because I just want to learn more about it. And it sounds like you have more knowledge about this than me. Is the inclusion of those investor hours, would that have been excluded if we were talking about a real estate specific activity if we're trying to find the, the partic- or, or is it the same participation tests in either sense where investor hours don't count whether or not it's related to the real estate industry? Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, so it does get a little dicey from that perspective. It's like whether or not those hours would count. And so I find it very clear in like the Dash 5T F regs where they basically say you can't include investor level hours. So like from a real estate perspective, you'd probably be stuck. Like the 469 rules do apply broadly to all industries. They are a little bit more directly targeted towards real estate in some instances. But I would try and say for the most part, unless you're doing extra on top of the investor level, then I would say if like you are truly just looking to debt raise, you're just looking to capital raise. And I will also say is that back in the TCGA, originally there were some like drafts showing that financing was going to be included as a real property trader business. That did end up getting removed. You can kind of imply from congressional intent there that financing type activities are not going to be included. And that would probably land as an investor type level hour or time spent. Interesting. So if I'm raising capital, that in and of itself is not going to enable me to qualify as a real estate professional. And I would probably extrapolate that to say, even if raising capital is my full-time job, that doesn't necessarily make me a real estate professional because I'm probably, after I raise the capital, I'm working in an investor capacity on each one of those deals as it is. Is that your take as well? Yeah, that's pretty much where I would stake my flag per se. Um, it's that from that perspective, it's that yes, is that unless you're really deep involved in the day-to-day management, but most fund managers are not going to be involved in that way. They're going to be too far removed to be dealing with the actual business or management of the operations. Let's talk about real quick, what time does count and what activities do I need to be working on? Absolutely. That's a fantastic question. Yeah. So essentially being involved in the day-to-day management of operations, right? Those are the personal service hours that like the Dash 9 that I mentioned earlier is like talks about personal services and real property trader business. So if you're a real estate agent and you're a real estate broker, then you are involved in a real property trader business. You're involved in selling properties. You're involved in doing those kinds of items, right? So you're at the base level. Like you are doing like those kinds of properties or like communicating with management operations, right? It's like if you're dealing with a with contractors, if you're dealing with, you don't even deal with like the actual like employees of a contracting company. If you're just talking with the owner, I think that would help you qualify for real estate professional status. Like actually going back to the Lamas case is that he was working with general contractors. He was working with plumbers. Like he was trying to get people out to the properties to repair them, get them fixed up, get them developed. And he was very much in the day-to-day operation. So it's like day-to-day operations. It's like, I would honestly call it a smell test is that the more you think about it, the more sense it makes. I just wanted to hop in here because I wanted to play devil's advocate, put myself in the shoes of somebody who might be listening to this and maybe ask a leading question. But I'm just thinking about a scenario here where let's say I've got Dylan Brown Capital Raising Incorporated, and that's all I do. Uh, I spend 2000 hours doing that every single year. 
And it's very clear that if that in and of itself is a standalone trader business, I am materially participating in that trader business. I feel strongly that I'm materially participating in that trader business and I'm raising capital for things that maybe I'm arguing that those things that I'm putting the money into, they qualify as activities uh, that would you know, fit within the 750 hour test. That's the logic that I've heard a lot. Can you walk us through why maybe that logic is flawed? Maybe diving into a little bit more about how activities are treated separately and how my activity might be treated separately from the activities I'm raising capital for. Because I think maybe that's where a lot of people get tripped up. No, that's a great question. That's a really good point in that regard. So let's say that over your various businesses, you reach 750 hours, right? Well, there's something called 1.469-9G grouping election. And so that allows you to group your time together to qualify as a real estate professional. Now, there are very specific businesses that are qualified under the regs that allow you to be a real estate professional. You have to hit the 11. And like it's, I won't list all 11, but it's construction, it's development, operations and management, acquisition, like those kinds of items. What about hotels? So hotels actually did get tossed into TCGA. They are under the operations and management now. It's very new. But in TCGA, they did get thrown into that. Well, so now I've got another question. Sorry, I did not go on. A, we'll, we'll circle back because now I've got a bigger question. So if I can manage hotels and qualify as a real estate professional, can I manage short-term rentals and qualify as a real estate professional? So that is a great question. Current, so currently, tax court doesn't says that you cannot. Tax court says that you can't. Now, I believe as a firm that we do not... <laughs> But yeah, we, we might have to take a look at that. All right, we'll we'll circle back on that question <laughs> at some later point this year. <laughs> All right, let's go back to Dylan's question. I'm sorry to take us off off track. That's okay. I'll realign on my question a little bit because I want to make sure we hit it. And it's basically my question res- revolves around like I come to you and I say, look, I spent two thousand hours this year on Brown Capital raising. XYZ Incorporated, whatever you want to call it, right? And, and you raised um, two hundred million dollars, and I raised I raised two hundred billion dollars actually. And uh, <laughs> fantastic! You know, there's a uh, there's a TikTok video going around where this guy's like, the way to get wealthy is to get three hundred friends that all net a million dollars a year, and then those three hundred friends then net ten million dollars a year, and then a hundred million dollars a year, and then you all put your money into a fund, and you've got like two hundred billion. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that. Honestly, that felt like glass knives. The what is it, the glass onion, right? It felt like like all I could think about was like was that that purpose where like all of a sudden you've got one of the people trying to kill all the other people or something like yeah. that. I don't know. It just felt like a big like conspiracy type movie. It's like you're like, oh yeah, all my friends are super rich together, and all of a sudden, you know, you're in a place where like people are getting murdered left and right. I don't yeah, know. yeah. Nice. So, so nice. Dylan has 300 friends. D- Dylan was actually the feature in the video. I'm just kidding. Dylan's got 300 <laughs> friends. He's raised 200 billion dollars. All right, continue, continue. Yeah. And okay. Thank you for that. I, I feel so out of the loop, you guys. I don't even know what the hell you guys are talking about. <laughs> anyway, um, I got, I've spent 2,000 hours on my capital raising business. And I've also got all these interests in these various real estate deals that I've helped put together, right? I put my own money into them too. I got carried interest in them because I helped raise the capital and all that. My thought here is like, look, I should be able to group all these together because, you know, I'm raising capital for a real estate business. I've spent 2000 hours in that business. Um, like, I think that the real question I'm getting at here is why is the time I've spent 
on that business, that I'm materially participating in the business that I perceive every day as my business, how is that not in any way linked to the activities I'm raising capital for? I guess. Um, let's just revisit that. Yeah. No, great question. So essentially, I would say that capital raising, even if it's for a real property traded business, I would say based on case law, and I would say based on other factors that you would not be able to group the time that you spent in that business with other real estate activities. It would be precluded from that. You could do a dash, what's called a dash four election potentially to group that with other activities, but you would not be able to utilize a 1.469-9 grouping election to make it qualify for real estate professional status. And that's the, that's the specific code section to allow for real estate professional status. And capital raising is not a real property trader business. And for dash nine, you can only use what's considered real property trades or businesses. And uh, I'll just add a very simple way to think about this is, so, so one of the real property trades or businesses that qualifies for real estate professional status is brokerage. And there's case law that says a mortgage broker is not considered a brokerage real property trade or business. So brokerage means like being the actual real estate agent. That's what it means. And the reasoning behind this was the real estate agent puts together buyers and sellers of property, but the mortgage broker puts together buyers and sellers of the note of the financing component, not the actual underlying real property. And I think if you're a capital raiser, it'd be interesting to kind of see again, that like lead GP piece. But if you're a capital raiser on the GP team and you're not like the lead, I view it as more of like you're putting together buyers and sellers of financing, not the underlying property, right? So you're bringing financing to the actual GP, to the person that's sponsoring the deal or running the deal. You're not really running it yourself. That's the way that I think about it. Got it. Got it. So I see the problem as really twofold. I see the one that you just mentioned, Brandon, which is my business, it's not a real estate business. It's like a securities and exchange exempt capital raising securities business. Like that's the business. So it's already out of the realm in that sense. And then I guess the other issue, one, I already can't group that because it's, it's not eligible to be grouped. But then if you take those hours off the table, what am I really materially participating in? I'm, I guess I'm not materially participating in the activity that I was raising capital for. That's the activity that would be the one I would need to materially participate in, but I'm spending all my time on Brown Capital Raising Inc. So I guess, yeah, that I think if people walk through that example in their head, it's going to be a little more clear to them kind of uh, the issues that they're going to have. So really, I guess you can be too big for reps is what I'm getting taken away from this. But maybe the takeaway is not that that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, yeah, I, I guess that's where my head's at. Yeah, I, I think if we like bring it back down to earth and think about who we want to target with this podcast, which is the sponsors and the operators of large portfolios. I think you can be too small for reps for real estate professional status in this sense. And I also think you could be too large. And I think there's this middle ground where you're running your own deals where you can start to qualify. But yeah, I, I mean, in our world, when we see people start to get into these groups where they're raising capital, they're raising capital and they're bringing that to a deal that's already started. They already have a lead sponsor on it. So they're teaming up with these other leads. And I think that that's where I'm saying it. you're too small to be a real estate professional because you couldn't raise the capital yourself to take the deal down yourself. But I also think that in our world as well, we work with some very large operators and very large sponsors. And I think that 
you can be so large where you can't qualify as a real estate professional because your activities are all investor level activities, which might be fine for material participation in your trader business, but it's not going to help you qualify as a real estate professional specifically. But to Nate's point, that might not even be a big deal if you've gotten to that size and all of the income that you earn is passive income might not be that big of a deal, but I guess it kind of depends. You know, I'm thinking about some of the folks that we have and they, there's some people that are hundred percent in real estate, but there's some that have built large holdings and have other businesses running as well that are generating non-passive income. So it could actually be painful if you're not careful, if you scale yourself out of a job, it could be painful. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There are opportunities that could be painful. And you know, like in those kinds of times, that's when you consult with your tax advisor and talk with them and see, you know, what opportunities you have for tax savings in case you've, you've scaled yourself too far up and maybe you've got ordinary income. And like, you know, maybe there is a case that to be made in your sense is like we're saying, like it's more likely than not, you will not qualify. But that's why we're advisors. We're here to help our clients work through these difficult, tough situations that may or may not be facts and circumstances based. And the facts and circumstances don't always lend to negativity, even though they might on a large amount of occasion. Okay, so I have to circle back to this one more time, and then I'll stop beating the dead horse. But I have to play devil's advocate because that's what I'm here for, guys. So this is a real life scenario. I won't say any names, but I've got a professional acquaintance who's become somewhat of a friend here in the Twin Cities, and he's running an insane operation. He's probably at that level that we're talking about where we're starting to get too big to be reps. But I keep thinking about his scenario and the position he's built for himself. And I have a really hard time imagining a scenario where he's not a real estate professional. So let me just give you his profile and see if, if this changes our analysis and what people who might be in the similar position might be looking at this differently. Or maybe it's the same for them and I should give him a call, right? So he's the CEO of a company that predominantly just has you know, industrial and they have retail and a little bit of commercial office space all over. Uh, it's you know maybe three, four million square feet. And he does have a lot of outside investors, but he also puts his own money in. And he's scaled it up so far that he's basically got a management team for every aspect of his business. But you got to keep in mind, it's not like he's in the business of raising capital. He's in the business of operating buildings, construction. He's got construction and development happening. He's got leasing agents. He's got a brokerage within his firm, right? He's got all of these different activities going on. However, his time, he is so high level. He's like three levels removed from boots on the ground, right? He's got managers under managers, that kind of situation. So for somebody in that position, is there still a risk that you could look at him as more of an investor because his title is still CEO and the president of leasing for his company, right? That's still where his head's at. That's still kind of where his, the management decisions he is making are all in that realm. So where's the line, I guess? And to add to that, where does that 5% ownership rule come into play? His specific situation, I'll give you some real, real numbers here. He's the sole owner of the corp and he's, he's more than 10% owner by capital contributed in all of his properties, about 10%. So we'll just, th that's kind of the fact pattern I'm going for. So definitely the 5% is still applies or he's within the 5% rule. Yeah. So that's an excellent question. So actually there is, there's a tax case, I believe from 2015 called Stanley. It was a Arkansas, it was Arkansas circuit case. And in Stanley, he was actually a lawyer. He performed general counsel for the management operations of the company. So he wasn't necessarily involved in the management of the properties. He wasn't involved in the acquiring or anything like that. Obviously, he would counsel on it as a lawyer, but he wasn't necessarily. And actually, the 
court found that he did qualify as a real estate professional. Well, the IRS tried to come at him and say that he was not an owner. He was an employee. Well, actually, he that he had a stock certificate showing that he was a 10% owner in the entity. So even though he wasn't 100% working in the other day-to-day operations, he was involved enough so that they qualified him as a real estate professional. Now, to caveat this, the IRS has non-acquiesced on this case. They have basically said, we don't agree with the result of it, and we will take similar situations, we will continue to take similar situations to court. But even though he was a lawyer and he was working just in legal services, and he was not necessarily involved in all the day-to-day operations, he did end up qualifying as a real estate professional per this case. Like I said, the IRS doesn't agree, but it is case law at this point. So then I guess to answer Dylan's question, his friend would be a real estate professional because he owns 100% of the real property trader business. And it doesn't matter what his friend is doing at that point, as long as his friend is working in the business in any capacity. I'm almost thinking I hear this. I'm, I'm reading between the lines here and I'm just thinking in terms of like, okay, you got to figure out where the person's time is spent, right? My buddy here, he's obviously not boots on the ground at all those properties he owns. So he's not materially participating there. So you got to look at where he is materially participating. Obviously the corp, that's his baby. He's the CEO. So it's really the mothership entity that they're spending all the time in that you have to figure out, is that specific activity qualifying hours, right? And in this case, it is because of all the things that they're doing. Capital raising is just a little sliver of what they're doing. But like, do you need to bifurcate? Like say, okay, what if capital raising was more than half of what this company was doing? We could really get into the weeds, I feel like. I think you're getting to a really dicey scenario when you're dealing with getting more than 50% of just capital raising. Like kind of talking about that llama situation where basically, and what, like, what, a, fun, what a fun name that is, by the way. I just thought about that. <laughs> but uh, it's like the llama situation is basically it's like he did end up doing some, not all, and like, even though it wasn't a reps case, it was material participation. And material participation hours do matter for real estate professional status. So then in terms of determining if you are a real property trader business, so you can go to the regs 469-9. That is where you're going to find definitions on what the real property trader businesses are. And I think a lot of people listening to this, I mean, if you're not in like the development space, a lot of people listening to this are probably going to be looking at real property operations. So you, if you're listening to this and you're like, man... I'm the owner of this company. I want to make sure that I can qualify as a real estate professional because I've got other non-passive income coming in that I want to be able to offset. Or if you are an employee of of a real property trader business or a real estate company and you own at least 5%, so I guess a partner of a real estate business, you could potentially qualify as a real estate professional too. So I would say get some counsel on it. Uh, We're obviously happy to help you. But you'd be looking at the regs in 469-9, and you'd probably be looking at the definition of real property operation, if I had to guess, because real property management is going to be that on-the-ground management. So you can kind of look at those regulations and try to figure out, you know, what does my business meet the definition of a real property trader business? And it sounds like if, if it does, you've got a lot of of flexibility there in terms of potentially qualifying as a real estate professional based on these cases that we were just talking about. Yeah, I think there there's room for potential. Definitely don't want to say 100%. And also have to do have to caveat as well is that a lot of the funds and a lot of the businesses that we see dealing in real estate are LLCs. And a lot of times LLCs are partnerships. Partnerships, you can't be a W2 employee 
of a quote unquote LLC or like that is treated as a partnership. If you are a corporation, S corporation, then yeah, totally this like you could have 5% stock, have a W2, no big deal. Like if you're an employee in that regard. Now, if you're being paid from a guaranteed payment perspective, you know, like that's considered portfolio income. So it's a little bit more tricky aspects there, but just want to make sure I drop that caveat in there. All right. Well, this is awesome. This is great. I hope that listeners have learned something new. This is definitely something we've not talked about before as it pertains to real estate professional status. Normally, it's about how do W-2 earners transition out of that, get their spouses involved and all that fun stuff. So I think the scale piece is a, is a unique conversation. If you need help with real estate professional status, whether you need consulting or if you're getting audited, there's a lot of those starting to happen. Hit us up at www.therealestatecpa.com or you can email Dylan or I or find us on social media. We'd love to help you. Uh, Nate does work with us at our firm. It's a smart, smart guy. Very happy to have him here. Nate, any final pieces of advice as it pertains to real estate professional status? You know, the biggest piece I'd say is that like, even if you think that you're good to go on real property trader business, log your hours, keep good detailed records. I can't tell you the number of times that people have been knocked down just because they didn't have records. They couldn't prove what they had done, what they hadn't done. Even if you think you're saying like, all I do is real estate. I'm good to go. Keep a time log. That's something that's very important. And that's very important to the IRS. Yep. Just to add to that, if you have multiple activities, you need to track the time that you spend in your other activities as well. 100%. Uh, so really great, really great piece of advice. Nate, thanks so much for coming on to the show today. We really appreciate it. We'll talk to you guys later. Thank you guys. Thank you for having me. We had a great time. Thanks for listening to the Major League Real Estate Podcast. There are three ways that you can connect with us. If you're interested in getting email updates on upcoming shows, go to www.mlrepodcast.com and subscribe there. If you'd like to explore a tax and accounting relationship with our CPA firm, you can go to www.therealestatecpa.com slash MLRE and fill out the web form to get started. And if you'd like to connect with Dylan or I on social media, you can find us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Just search Dylan Brown CPA or Brandon Hall CPA. Shoot us a request. We'd love to connect. We'll see you next time.